it's good to see you. And I usually begin with some kind of joke or humor, but I'm going to skip that today because I'm going to tell you a story. For the next three weeks, we're going to look at an old book called Your Aladdin's Lamp by Harlan Ware and someone whom a few of you who've been around for a while will have heard of, Bill Hornaday. Some of you may remember a skit that we've done a couple of times a while back about a guy named Julius Podholtz and his need to see things another way. That parable in positivity came from this book. And there are 14 other tales which are just as important for us to hear and apply to our lives. Now, a parable, according to Webster, is a short, fictitious narrative of a possible event in life or nature from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. So a story with a moral to teach, a fundamental lesson to learn, right? Now, although the stories in this book are written in the style of a parable, the material is taken from the files of actual cases from the early days of the Institute of Religious Science. Every bit of these are true, except for some of the names of clients. And I say some because two gave permission to be used. Maybe I'll tell you which ones. Um, They come not only from the in-office accounts from each case, but also from taped recordings of public lectures, verbatim reports from seminars, and from the memory of the two authors who were present during those early days of religious science. And it's done in this way because, in their words, they intended to capture the attitude and speech of a remarkable man who sought in all religions of the world an expression of the central integrity in the universe. And so our tale begins. And I I loved the way they set the scene on page one. It was four o'clock, blue sky overhead, perfect day, as the amplifiers drenched the garden with the opening bars of Mendelssohn's wedding march. The bride, in shimmering white with veil, reacted convulsively in the grape arbor. And then, majestic as a sailing ship before a favoring wind, she urged her escort into the hesitant step of the processional. The bridesmaid, there was only one, seemed a bit distraught in pink tulle, which had seen another wedding. But she quickly activated the flower girl, a starchy toddler who'd had instructions but no rehearsal. The small parade sorted itself out in proper order and moved toward the grassy aisle. The child under orders thrust a chubby hand into the flowery basket but failed to scatter rose petals. She had heard a sob. Keep going, whispered the bridesmaid sharply. The witnesses, in hostile clusters on either side of the aisle, stood stiffly, looking straight ahead. Only the bride's mother glanced back at the processional. The flower girl, now being prodded from behind, moved slowly on, not so much scattering petals as placing them. Nobody beamed at her. Nobody whispered, isn't she cute? Get going. The child's fingers pulled out a few petals. The altar where the minister, best man, and bridegroom waited seemed very far away to her. Then she glanced shyly ahead, caught a warm smile from the minister, and moved. 
Diminutive in his black robe, he was five foot three. Dr. Ernest Holmes waited calmly, service book in hand. Undisturbed by what was clearly a sticky situation, he was inwardly bestowing blessings on the melancholy bridegroom, the grim best man, and the glowering witnesses. And I loved this line. Dr. Holmes was a philosopher first and a minister only when it was forced upon him. And he would approach this problem in a most unorthodox way. And we're going to learn all about that way. But before I go on, is everybody picking up on that joyful, light, celebratory mood of the wedding? Yeah? The optimism and excitement? See, the thing is, Ernest Holmes wasn't meant to be there that day. He was actually just about to get into the car to head to the annual conference of Churches of Religious Science at Asilomar on the Monterey Peninsula, where he was, of course, the keynote speaker. He had literally just closed the trunk when the secretary came rushing out to the parking lot. She said that there was a man on the phone who said there was an emergency and insisted on speaking with him, and he sounded like he was about to burst into tears. So, of course, Ernest took the call, and the man on the other end of the line explained that the minister who had been slated to perform the wedding had left in a huff. Why? Well, let me preface this by saying um, this was the 1950s, the early 1950s, and people had some odd and interesting ideas about what was and wasn't socially allowed in those days, and what wasn't allowed could be a deal breaker. It's strange to me what extremes in narrowness of thought some folks will, even in these days, choose as the hill they'll die on, to coin the colloquial phrase, right? The things folks will do to prove their ultimately inconsequential opinions have some sort of merit can be astounding. That minister left not because it was a shotgun wedding. Y'all know what that means, right? No, he did not leave because the bride was what the book called terminally pregnant. She was near to delivering, almost on the spot. No, he left because she insisted on wearing white. And if that weren't trouble enough, the groom had only been given a three-day leave from his military post in Japan. So the wedding absolutely could not wait. And so Ernest, probably thinking that other minister quite silly, gathered up his robe, and without so much as changing his clothes, he rushed to the home in Beverly Hills where the wedding was taking place. And so it began. Friends, we are assembled here in the presence of God and these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in the bonds of holy wedlock. And the ceremony went along quite nicely for a paragraph or so. All was smooth as cream until Dr. Holmes reached that repetitive before these witnesses part. Whereupon he stopped abruptly. You see, Ernest Holmes was not only unorthodox, he was unpredictable. He trusted the power within, that light within. And before these witnesses... The lengthening pause had brought a stir of apprehension, but he had not lost his place. In emotion, his voice took on a reverent tone. 
And there is another witness who will be blessed by this ceremony. A tiny, adorable witness who even now is responding to the love of his parents and grandparents on either side of the aisle. Another witness whose life will be influenced by friends and relatives who, after all, cared enough to come to this solemn ceremony, a ceremony which was first envisioned by a charming little girl many years ago who dreamed of a fluffy white dress. And he looked up to see that the mother of the bride had won her first reward. Across the aisle, an old man smiled, chuckled warmly, and then settled back to enjoy the wedding. Now, I could have plowed right past that opening bit of the story because it really has no bearing on where we're going for today except for this. Ernest Holmes was what I call shiny. Some of you have heard me use that. He led with inner knowingness, and it was vibrantly apparent simply by being in the same space with him. That's something we need to remember as we delve into these tales. Ernest Holmes carried a bit of his uniquely joyful magic into every situation, and the world responded to his beautiful intention. We have proof in this very space. After the ceremony, he, Reverend Dr. Bill Hornaday, and two associates began the long drive to Asilomar. There were wisps of fog along the seacoast, but the view along Highway 1 was still breathtaking. After a while, their headlights picked up on a lone figure at the roadside, a wistful man with an upraised thumb. Ernest urged them to stop. That means he's hitching a ride for anybody who's not familiar. That is illegal now. But they'd do this, and you would take a chance or not and give them a ride. Ernest Holmes urged them to stop, and the thin young man with a crew cut and horn-rimmed glasses wore a T-shirt under a tweed jacket. He was 19, a student at Stanford next quarter, and bright as a penny, they would soon discover, Ernest took to him immediately. And as the miles passed, the conversation, which had centered on evidence of healings, turned to existentialism, communism, Freud, T.S. Eliot, Karl Marx, and nihilism. Annihilate the idea of God or there can be no freedom, the boy told them flatly. Annihilate civilization, property, marriage, morality, and justice. Let your own happiness be the only law. And just then, a voice from one of the other passengers piped up, and I loved this. You're pretty tweety for a beatnik. <laughs> that gave me a giggle. Beatniks have degraded nihilism the boy announced. There are no happy beatniks. They all itch. To spare him possible embarrassment, they began introductions in that moment. He was Bernard Opley of Chicago and Palo Alto, he said. And then he did a double take. Uh, Dr. Ernest Holmes, the minister, he asked, and his face froze. A minister. He was disgusted. The young man folded his arms and ducked his chin, ready for battle. I don't believe in God, he told them and waited for a counterblow. No counterblow. You don't believe in the anthropomorphic God many people believe in, Ernest said. I don't myself. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls have blown Christianity out the window, the boy announced, looking around the car as though expecting someone to scream. There's a lot of it yet to be published, you know. Why do you suppose the churches are trying to get together? They're bracing for the storm. Much of the Sermon on the Mount appears in the scrolls, and they're dated 200 years before Jesus. There goes the Virgin Mary and the Nicene Creed and the Trinity and the Holy Ghost. The church isn't alive, sir. It's dead and merely twitching. What have you got left? Well, said Ernest, mildly, it seems we have the Christ consciousness. It's never been affected by conventions of bishops, and we have the great Jesus of Nazareth and his demonstration that the Christ consciousness has always been in the world and always will be. Nothing has ever excelled his manifestation of it. You'll pardon me, Dr. Holmes, but I don't believe in any God whatsoever. It's a mechanistic universe. Well, now, Ernest said, smiling. Can you prove it? After Buchenwald and Dachau and wholesale murder of millions in Russia and China and starvation right now in Asia, it ought to be pretty obvious what kind of world it is. For billions of people, it's anguish with the gods left out. Think about that whole speech if it was applied to today's global climate. There are tens of millions of people across the globe who are thinking very similarly today. Agreed? Have you ever attended a church? Holmes asked. Wow, have I? He turned in the seat, half-facing Ernest. Doctor, when I was a little boy, four years old maybe, I remember the preacher pouring out sermons like so much hot lava, and I swung my legs and I thought, none of this is true. Hellfire and brimstone, was it? You betcha. Original sin. I was born rotten, the preacher said. Only way to turn myself right side out and avoid hell was to grovel at his feet and pray and get there on time with my money. His preaching worried some of the kids, but it never worried me. When I got old enough to go to school, I learned some kids didn't believe it either. Then I found out my folks didn't actually believe it. They said it was a way to think on Sundays. It was moral training. Well, one morning when I was about eight, I said to God, look, Look, you, if you're the man who's as mean as our preacher says, strike me down. I stood in the middle of the sidewalk looking up with my arms spread, waiting, and nothing happened. I came home on top of the world, and I've been free ever since. Ernest listened attentively, then asked, by the way, I have a special fund for agnostics under 20. How would you like to be my guest at a Silomar and eat a few square meals? The boy turned instantly suspicious. He grunted out something negative and dropped into a brooding silence. We all know what teenagers do. We know that silence, right? That brooding, glowering silence. Ernest hooked an arm on the back of the seat and looked around at the rest of us. Ecclesiasticism, he murmured. You see, it's wrecking religion. Bernard bristled. I never had a religion, and I'm doing fine without it. I got all A's last year. It's the bright ones they lose first, Ernest told us, and then they lose the others later on. Bernard, there will be young people at Asilomar who have also been mad at God. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> Why the sales talk? It doesn't matter, he said. You're invited. Take it or leave it. 
Why would you care what I think, Dr. Holmes? Ernest grinned as they pulled into the conference center. I just like to keep abreast of current trends. By the way, you and Dr. Hornaday should have much in common. He was a rebel once, too. He went to China with plans to become a missionary and found out that the heathen he'd come to save knew more about God than he did. Spoiler alert, that's the story for next week. So I think you're going to like it. And so the next day found our bright young lad shadowing Dr. Holmes and his colleagues from lecture to lecture. And after, Ernest invited a few potential critics in for coffee. Did you understand what I was saying this morning, he asked a group of young students. Everybody had. Good, he said happily. Explain it to me then. There was a lot of it I didn't understand myself. <laughs> there were 200 people in the audience that, that morning. And many of them had crowded up to the platform. Bernard was not among them. Bernard, what did you get out of what I said, Ernest asked. Nothing, said he. It sounded like so much mishmash to me, sir. Everyone in earshot bristled, but the atmosphere was immediately brightened by Ernest's beaming smile. Let's have some lunch. As they sat to eat, Ernest placed Bernard at his right, but he addressed two pretty girls who sat across the table. In these days, a young man's caustic attitude toward what he calls religion, and which is actually the old theology, it isn't unreasonable to frustrate growth by insistence on rusty forms and superstitious beliefs is to tarnish the light he brought into the world. In the age of the atom, supersonic flight, television, fabulous experiments in ESP and documented discoveries and insistence in an angry Jehovah on a throne in the skies will frustrate genius, frighten children, and make disbelievers of our brightest young people. And I'll add that if the truth in that statement was true then, it's an even more impressive truth in light of the discoveries in our age. So I'm going to employ artistic license and frame his statements in the concept of what I know of current events going on. Um, and remember, I actively avoid the news, so these are going to be broad strokes of what I know. I'm doing this because the lessons in Ernest Holmes' answers are just as perfect and powerful today as they were then. Some theology-ridden, well-intentioned preacher hamming away on outmoded dogmas will drive them out of the churches and onto the highways where they'll hold up a thumb and boast their agnosticism and scorn God. Bernard was sitting straight up. He hadn't heard much of that which had been said. Listen, perhaps, as if it had been a college lecture, but he felt the time had come for a debate. He put down his fork. How did your God allow the invasion of Ukraine and the brutal slaying of all those innocent people, he demanded, planting both hands on his knees, elbows up? or the resurgence and reinvigoration of the millennia of conflict throughout Palestine, Israel, and their surrounding nations, or the social and political landscape right here at home which enables people to claim they're doing God's righteous work when they judge, hurt, and even kill others over harmless differences that their dogmatic interpretation of the Bible deems evil. 
You don't answer these questions, sir. How could any God worth knowing permit the cruelty of man to man down through the ages? Ernest asked gently, Bernard, do you have any quarrel with the orderly stars? Or the dependable tides, with the warmth of the sun, the change in seasons, the beauty of nature, the intelligence and thrust in seed and soil. Any quarrel with your own ability to think your way in and out of corners? Why, the conveying of one idea to another, sometimes without words, sometimes at a distance, having awareness in this world of dazzling beauty, what is it but God, nearer than breathing, closer than hands and feet? We affirm a belief in the universe of ultimate good because we, too, have doubted and questioned and explored. And now we have a backlog of case histories. You'll only know that I speak the truth when you have proof of your own. You'll only arrive at that reassuring notion that in, in that one instant of expansion in your thinking, a technique which will lift you from where you are and give you the view from a tower, and it can dissolve your problems. We are carrying on this amiable discussion on a planet which moves with predictable precision and stars which have existed for uncountable years, for an eternity, open at both ends because there is no end. There was no beginning, and we've got to stretch our concepts for another view of time. You've been talking about impersonal physical laws, Dr. Holmes, in a good universe. Bernard pointed toward the sea. But if I walk out into that dependable tide and I can't swim, I'll drown. That's right. And the incoming surf will be as beautiful as ever. But where's your God in that? Where he's always been, expressing infinite wisdom. He is forever the light in a universe of achieved perfection, within which there's a dimension with plenty of room for the evolving soul of Bernard Opley. I'm dead. I just drowned. You still have the greatest gifts ever bestowed, consciousness and free will. You simply start over. Theory! Bernard yelled, hammering at the table. Look, if I had been in any of the war zones, that impersonal God of yours would have let me die along with millions of others in the worst kinds of savagery known to man. You haven't outgrown the church at home, Bernard, Ernest said sharply. The God you don't believe in is an anthropomorphic concept and gone with the wind. I wouldn't want to know a God who can tell the difference between Jew, Gentile, Catholic, Protestant, male, female, black, white, or any other color or difference. Consciousness has no color, no creed, no gender. No sane person these days would acknowledge a God who might suspend cosmic laws in special instances. Yet, if you'll search 
your own expanding awareness will lead you to discover laws that supersede laws, that supersede laws. And your understanding of this might very well have led to your escape. This is utter and absolute mishmash, Bernard said. I haven't the faintest idea what you're saying. Ernest sighed. Here's an illustration borrowed from Thomas Troward. He said, listen carefully now. For centuries, men accepted this as law. A bar of iron placed in water will sink. Nobody doubted this law. Everyone could prove it, but it was not the truth, the whole truth. That law is superseded by another, and iron will float, heat it, shape it, close the ends, displace the water with it, and it becomes an iron ship. As your studies take you in this direction, you keep discovering laws that supersede other laws. Then you find the technique so that you may function comfortably in such a universe. And what happens then will seem miraculous. After two attempts, Bernard met the wry, smiling glance of the girl across the table. That argument about one law superseding another isn't too terrible at that, Bernard said and subsided. Later, as they watched him walking toward the beach with the girl, Ernest said, Awful nice kid, Bill, but I wouldn't want to be 19 again, would you? There's no telling what will happen to these young people when they begin to realize the power within, Ernest said, then sighed. No lecture ever reaches them, I suppose. That night, as conference attendees lingered over coffee, someone sharply challenged Ernest and his colleagues. Bernard had pointedly avoided their table but sat within earshot, and before long, he pulled up a chair. It seemed his recognition had begun. What a marvelous story, right? I have to tell you, I often try to avoid telling people what I do before they get a chance to know me. I have found that many, many assumptions are made when I reveal that I'm a minister. And I can say without exception, they're all incorrect. Every last one of them. I love a good cuss word when it's used positively. I hardly ever think I'm right, and I absolutely don't believe that I or anyone else has ever had the one and only true word of God. The word of God. Let that marinate for a moment. In the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was not the word and God. The word was God. All that is, is God. And how can any of God be bad? How can any of us be bad? Ashamed, evil, unworthy. It's impossible. In God, there are no winners or losers. There's no such division as us and them. It's all us. 
always us. It always has been. Yesterday, I had a wonderful phone conversation with a woman, I haven't told you about this, by the name of Reverend Dr. Michelle Whittington from ANTN, that's the Affiliated New Thought Network, during which we discussed all of the many wonderful ways ANTN has um, that they've helped other churches with in the past. I applied for their program, and she was asking me to narrow down the audience we want to reach. Because I had said, when they asked in the application, what do you need help with? I said, yes. <laughs> we need help with all of it, please and thank you. Um, so she was helping me narrow it down. Um, and I told her my thoughts about the audience we want to reach. We absolutely want to revitalize this place. We want to fill it to the brim and do that in ways which include and go beyond those which have helped us thrive throughout the decades. And anyone who's been coming regularly the last few years can see that is happening. But to focus only on filling this singular place is denying a greater good, which has an even greater need. Getting our teachings out to people all over the world, anyone who will listen. When people of the world realize the fundamental truth that all is one, and that one is always love, imagine how things will change. Fear will cease to be. Anger will be eradicated. War will become an outdated term meant to describe a former illusion of separation from God. And who can be angry at God when they realize the truth that God is within them? Because when people finally get that we are truly one, in the words of Ernest Holmes, there's no telling what will happen to people when they begin to recognize the power within. Thank you.